As I was reflecting back over the mission trip and some of the Bible study that our team did in preparation for the mission trip, the Lord drew my heart to this psalm, Psalm 96, as the text to preach on this Sunday, a Sunday which we've set aside to focus on and to recap a little bit of what God did through our team there in Honduras. This is an amazing psalm that combines two vital elements of the Christian life. It combines two vital elements of the Christian life. So let me ask the kids in here a question. And big kids can answer too. Kids, what's your favorite candy bar? Vera. Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Or anybody else? Favorite? Paul. Kit Kat. Yeah, right here. Milky Way. Okay, one other one. Favorite candy bar. Hershey's Cookies and Cream. Is that a candy bar? Okay, all right. Okay, just making sure. It's not, it sounds like an ice cream flavor or something. All right. Okay. All right, those are some of your favorite candy bars. Now, I think that um, some of you in here probably know what my favorite candy bar is. Any, any ideas? Marietta? There you go. Thank you. Uh, Marietta makes sure I stay stocked occasionally with the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. So, Vera, me and you are on the same page, sweetie. Uh, we both love these Reese's uh, Peanut Butter Cups. Now, do you remember the old commercials? Uh, I remember one, I remember several of the old Reese's commercials, but one in particular. There's a dude walking down the street with his Walkman on, his cassette tape player Walkman. And he's walking almost kind of like Saturday Night Fever kind of walk, you know, just, just walking. And he's holding a candy bar. And then around the corner is a girl walking. She also has her headphones on and her cassette tape Walkman. And she's walking with a jar of peanut butter. Now right there, the realism of the commercial is just sort of, I mean, I don't know how many people are walking around with a jar of peanut butter, but this girl was, and she didn't even have a spoon. She's just walking around. I don't know if she's, like, licking it or scooping out of it, but she's got this jar of peanut butter, and they walk around the corner, and they bump into each other. And his chocolate bar ends up in her peanut butter. And he actually says, oh, my goodness, you got your peanut butter on my chocolate bar. And she says, oh, you got your, your chocolate in my peanut butter. And they both pull out a piece. So I guess the bar broke in half perfectly right when it fell in. They both pull out a piece and bite it, and they go, Mmm. And then some creepy dude appears behind him with a Reese cup, right? I mean, he like comes right in between the two of them. And, and then the tagline is something along the lines of two great tastes that go together. And then it goes on to tell you you can buy them in uh, two packs or crunchy variety and whatever else. So, yes, what an epiphany. Peanut butter and chocolate go together. They're, they're better together. Um, the world has never been the same since that shining moment when that girl ran into that boy and those two flavors were combined. Now, this psalm that we're looking at today combines, obviously, two much greater things. Two much greater and more glorious and more important and more magnificent things are brought together in this psalm. And those two things are worship and missions. Worship and missions. This psalm, along with other several important texts in the scriptures, show us that true worship is inseparably tied to true missions. In the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper writes that missions exist because worship doesn't. Meaning that there is only one true God who is to be worshipped, But because billions and billions of people do not worship him, the church therefore has a mission. 
There is a vital connection between worship and missions, both local and global. But I think a lot of people don't understand that. I didn't understand that for a long time. Not because the connection isn't in the Bible, but because we tend to compartmentalize the Christian life. We have worship, we have discipleship, we have evangelism, we have uh, missions, and, and we sort of fragment the Christian life, and then everyone becomes specialists. We kind of pick the part we like the best. I'm, a, I'm an evangelism guy, or I'm a, I'm a worship guy, or whatever else, and, and we become specialists like doctors who a podiatrist focuses on feet while this other dude focuses on ears or whatever. And that's what the Christian life sort of becomes like, this fragmented experience. But we need a much more holistic view of the Christian life. And this psalm is particularly helpful in focusing our attention on the connection between worship and missions. So with that, I would like for you to stand, if you would, as we read Psalm 96. We're going to read the whole psalm, Psalm 96, verses 1 all the way down to verse 13. Psalm 96, verse 1, we stand in the honor of the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word to us. Verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Heavenly Father, my hope is that our singing today, as well as our praying and our preaching, is at least somewhat consistent with how glorious and grand you are. It is so easy to slip into routine and just go through the motions. Heavenly Father, don't allow us to do that. Stir our hearts up with fresh affections, with new songs right now. But we need your help. Our ears are dull Our eyes are blind without the help of the Holy Spirit. So give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that you give me a mouth to speak. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The background of this psalm, in case you don't know, the background of this psalm is that it's part of a larger psalm found in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 
The context of that passage is that David had brought the Ark of the Covenant to reside in Jerusalem after it had been circulating in several other Judean cities. So as part of the celebration of bringing the Ark back to Jerusalem, Asaph uh, is told by David to sing a psalm. And this is the psalm that he is given to sing. It's in Psalm, it's in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 through 36. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 through 36. Now you don't have to go there. But verses 23 through 33 of that bigger psalm is identical to what we have here. So this is a portion of a previous psalm that was bigger. Now I think that's a remarkable context for this psalm. Because if you think of an event like that, an event like the Ark of the Covenant, that the enemies of God had been defeated by David, he had recovered the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, that an event like that of the Ark coming back, coming back to Israel, coming to Jerusalem, you see, it would seem like the, the songs they would sing at that point would be very Israel-centric, very nationalistic. But instead, David writes a psalm about God's glory going to the ends of the earth. The psalm we have here is of the glory of God being spread, not only, in, not only being in Jerusalem, but going to the ends of the earth. So I think it's quite interesting as we consider the context. Structurally, this psalm is broken into three stanzas. Verses 1 through 6 are stanza number 1, and the stanza number 2 are verses 7 through 10, and they both consist of the same structure. First, a call or a summons for God's people to worship, followed by a call for missions, and then followed by the grounding, or the reason, the reason for the worship, the reason for the missions. And it's out of that grounding, those groundings, that I'm going to pull our points for today's sermon. Two of the points I'm going to take out of that um, first stanza, and the last point I'm going to take out of that second stanza. The final stanza of the psalm is verses 11 through 13, which is different in that it consists of a call to inanimate creation, inanimate objects from creation to worship and proclaim God. So first there's a call for God's people to do it, and then there's a call for the earth to do it. And so with that, let me go ahead and give you the first point this morning, the first reason or grounding for worship and missions. And here it is. Our Lord's power and beauty demand worship and missions. Our Lord's power and beauty demand worship and missions. First we see the worship, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. It's repeated three times. And then we have a call for missions. Look at the verbs here. Tell of his salvation. Declare his glory. So it's worship, sing, sing, sing. And then mission, tell, declare. Verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Singing is a particularly powerful expression of worship because singing has a unique way of displaying what's in the heart. People write songs about lovers. People sing anthems to express patriotism. People compose songs of lament after tragedy. Songs are a pipeline out of which flow the affections of the heart. Therefore, if our soul has been captured by and enraptured by God, we will sing. That's why God's people sing. And we are told to sing a new song. Now, this doesn't mean that we always have to be coming up with new compositions and, and new lyrics, although that's not a bad thing, but that's not necessarily what this psalm is telling us to do. The idea here the psalmist is communicating is that our singing should be fresh and new each day. 
Remember that this psalm itself is an old song. It's from First Chronicles chapter 16. It's an old song, but yet it can be sung in a fresh way with, with new zeal and new passion. So Psalm 96.1 isn't the grounds, as I've heard one person argue, to ditch the old hymns of the faith. No, it's a rather, it's a challenge to sing the old hymns of the faith with renewed zeal and fresh passion every day. The freshness of our worship should match the freshness of God's new mercies that he grants us every day. And the freshness of your worship has nothing to do with your circumstances. I think you saw this picture in the video as well, and it's very hard to see on our screen here. But this is the last church we visited. It's in a city called Yuskaran. The name of the church is Ebenezer Baptist Church. And the man on the left, it's really hard to see because it's in the dark there. His name is Cruz, not Ted. Just cruise, all right? And we got to the church, and as you heard Mark say in the video, they welcomed us with open arms. But one of the things I think that stood out to our whole group there was the passion with which Cruz led the worship of these kids during VBS. He was excited. He was passionate. And when you know the fact that this church has been ravaged, it's been ravaged by abandonment, pastoral abuse, Bad theology. This once vibrant congregation, as I mentioned earlier, is just down to 14 adults. These are the type of circumstances that, that could have justified, would have justified not singing to God with zeal and freshness. Yet this guy sung with a joy and zeal that moved our group and really puts us to shame. They were old songs. They weren't brand new songs because they were songs I remember, Coritos, I remember singing when I lived in Ecuador. But they were new because of his love and his zeal for the one he was singing about. Verse 1 goes on. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord all the earth. As in all the peoples of the earth. So here we have our first hint at the missional shape of this psalm. The worship of our God should be fresh and it should be expansive. Including all the peoples of the earth. And verse 2 teaches us that it should be focused on God himself. Verse 2 says, sing to the Lord, bless his name. The name of a person in the Bible was significant. It represented who the person who he or she was. And it reflected his or her character. So we are to worship God according to who he is, his attributes, his character. So much of contemporary worship focuses on us and how we feel about God instead of on God himself. I mean, listen to some of the lyrics from our day. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. The modern church too often sounds like lovesick teenagers instead of awestruck worshipers. And it's infected the body of Christ, not only here, even in Latin America and beyond. Church needs to get back to singing fresh songs that are focused on who our God is. David now shifts seamlessly from worship to missions in verse 2. So he said, sing, sing, sing. Now tell of his salvation from day to day. Day to day. So our missional efforts to proclaim our God's salvation to the world should be as fresh as our worship. It too should mirror God's daily mercies to us. If we have fresh, new excitement to worship our God each day, we should have fresh, new zeal and desire to tell of his salvation every day. Tell, and then in verse 3, declare. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. His glory, who he is, his marvelous works, what he has done. Who he is and what he has done should be the focus of our singing. And the mission is global in its scope. Global in its scope. Some may wonder why we spend money to go down there and share the gospel. Why not just spend the money here? Or why not just focus here? Well, quite simply, the answer is that our mandate is global. Now, we don't do the global at expense of the local, nor do we do local while ignoring the global. We are called to go to the nations, our nation, and abroad. The New Testament expectation is for the local church to send people to other nations. To have personal, one-on-one contact with real people. Transcending cultures demonstrates, the, it visibly demonstrates the beautiful inclusivity of the gospel and the glorious diversity of the redeemed. That's one of the things that's accomplished in global missionary efforts. Is we demonstrate the fact that this gospel shatters cultural barriers. And brings people into one people of God. To glorify him. To gather around that throne. We go to the nations to reach people. Because people like this elderly man here to your right. People like this elderly man here continue to rest in the false God of their own good works. And he still, as far as we know, is resting in his own works. Or this elderly woman here who knew all about Jesus and heard Jesus her whole life. She's 80 years old, but she didn't know the Jesus of Scripture. Or, as one group amazingly found, there is even some people in a country that's saturated with Catholicism and that is increasingly evangelical, there are still some people who have never heard of the name of Jesus, as one of our groups discovered, amazingly. I had no idea who Jesus is. That's why we go. We go to the nations to encourage believers like this 78-year-old man whose, whose heart was encouraged, you heard Noah talk about him, by brothers who had come from a distant land. He just enjoyed having us there and fellowshipping with us. It was a great encouragement to him. Or these men who needed to hear, these are the men from the men's Bible study, these men who needed to hear that the struggle to be godly leaders is a universal struggle that transcends ethnicities. They needed to hear that. Or like this young man on, the le- on your left here, Victor. We go because a guy like Victor here desires to be a pastor. And he needs encouragement and he needs equipping. We go to the nations also to meet physical needs as well as spiritual ones. So that women can learn habits that will help keep their community healthier. So that the simple gift of new shoes forms a bond of Christian love and friendship that will last a lifetime. So that young adults can hear that young people in our nation are in bondage to the same sins. And that freedom is only found in the radical transformation that comes through the work of Jesus Christ. We go to the nations to support. To support local churches like uh, Iglesia Bautista Renacer. Where I preached that Saturday. And faithful pastors like Pastor Wilson here. Who we prayed around when we were at his church. And to remind the churches, okay, churches like this one here in Yuskaran that I've already mentioned, that you are not alone. That was the comment they made on that last day. It's just good to know we're not alone. That, know, that we haven't been abandoned. 
That's why we go. We go to the nations because God says, declare my glory among the nations and my marvelous works among the peoples. So the psalmist instructs us to tell and declare. And to tell in the Hebrew is simply the it means to joyfully and cheerfully share good news. It's the Old Testament equivalent to evangelize. And declare in the Hebrew means to record or enumerate. So the idea here is that we are to recount and share the many truths about who God is and what he has done. Now as we come to verse 4 here, we see the first grouping for worship, first grounding I should say for worship and mission from which I got our first point. That our Lord's power and beauty demand worship and missions. Look at verse 4. Here's the grounds. Verse 4. For, for, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So worship, passionately, go and tell why. Because for, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Power and beauty are bound up in these words here in this last portion of the first stanza. Great refers to the enormity, the power and might of our God. And the psalmist is challenging us, the worshipers, to exhibit worship and missions that is consistent with his greatness. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Half-hearted praise and weak-kneed missions is offensive to a big and mighty and powerful God. I'm afraid that By looking at the way many Christians worship and serve God, one would have to come to the conclusion that our God is small and feeble. Now I'll come back to the second half of verse 4 and verse 5 here in a second, but let me jump down to verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Our worship and our mission should be consistent with who he is. Splendor, majesty, strength, beauty. We naturally respond to and speak about things that we find splendid or majestic or strong or beautiful. It is natural to be captured by an exquisite piece of art and then talk to others about it. It is natural to be stunned by the Grand Canyon and then tell everyone about your experience. It is natural to applaud some athletic feat at the upcoming Olympics and then talk about it around the water cooler the next day. It is natural for parents to gush over their newborn baby and then post pictures of him or her on Facebook. Oh, friends, how much more should it be natural for born-again believers to exult in and to exalt to others the splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty of our God? And worship that properly reflects his glory has little to do with instruments or buildings or even great singing, but with the heart. Not many of our team would say that the worship music that they heard this week was the most beautiful music they had ever heard. But at the same time, they would tell you it was some of the most beautiful music they had ever heard. Because its beauty was manifest in the zeal and the passion of the people which corresponded to the splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty of our God. Now, don't take that to mean that we we forget to try to do things with excellence, we forget to try to do our worship with excellence or with skill, but let me tell you what, we American Christians need to understand that the ability to exhibit excellency and skill can sometimes put a mask over our hearts, hearts that are far away from God. Just because we sing a song with excellency does not mean our heart is close to God. And we as Americans need to be careful. Now, let me go back to the end of verse 4 and verse 5. 
Second half of verse 4. And remember, we're talking about the reasons for worship and mission. So here's the second reason that I'm going to give you in your notes. First of all, let me read verse 4. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So here's my next point. Our Lord's superiority and exclusivity demand worship and missions. He is above all gods, and all the other gods are worthless idols. His name, his character teaches us that he is indeed powerful and beautiful, but also that his name is the name above all names, and there's no other like him. So the whole of verse 4 teaches us that he is to be greatly praised, and he is also to be feared. He is to be worshipped with deep awe, which leads to reverence and repentance. The word praised in verse 4 is related to the Hebrew word for brilliance or brightness. So in the verbal form, it means to shine or to show. So we are to shine to show God's glory. But any experience of the brilliance of the glory of God by God's creatures is always accompanied by fear. The scriptures are replete with examples of people who experienced the glory of God and then fell on their faces in fear and in repentance. And we are to fear him because he is superior. Verse 4, he is to be feared above all gods. Our God's superiority demands worship and it demands missions. For the more diverse the people of God are, the more we demonstrate the truth that our God is indeed superior. And he is superior above all gods because he is exclusively the only God. Verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Now, I know this isn't politically correct in our day and age, to say something like this. Take it up with the Lord. We have to decide if we fear man or if we fear God. It's really that simple. And God has made it clear. There is no other God, and God has provided only one way for us to know him, and that is Jesus Christ the Son. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If that is true, then it demands not only worship, but also missions. There is only one way and without Christ, people are damned. Do you feel the urgency of missions, both local and global? Every single person on this globe in their fallen state knows enough about God to have no excuse and therefore be damned to hell. And likewise, every single person on this planet in their fallen state cannot know enough about God on his or her own in order to be saved. Therefore, he must have the gospel preached to him. That should generate a fearful worship and urgent missions among the people of God. Our God, our creator, the Lord who made the heavens. And so, in verse 7, we come to the second stanza of this psalm, and we come to our final point. Let me remind you of the structure. Again, we have worship, followed by missions, followed by the ground of the mission. So let me, let me read this. First, the worship. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So focus on the verbs there. These are worship verbs. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Bring, come, worship, tremble. And then we have the mission. Verse 10. Say. So come, scribe, tremble, and say. Say among the nations. And here's the message Here's the grounding. In the mission message, we have the grounding. The Lord reigns. 
Yes, the, Lord, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. As we think about this the second stanza, in verses 7 through 8, we have a repetition that's similar to verses 1 and 2. But instead of sing to the Lord, we have ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe simply means give to the Lord. Give to the Lord his due. Give to the Lord his glory that he is due. That parallelism helps us to see that one of the means that we give God his glory is through singing. One of the ways we ascribe glory to the Lord is through song. Notice some other parallels. Verse 1 says that our singing should have a missions focus. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And we're told here to ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. In verse 2, our singing is to be focused on God's character. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. And look here at verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So we are called to ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And one of the ways we do that is through singing. But we are also told here in this text to bring and come and worship and tremble. Bring an offering and come into his courts. The offering here refers to, in Hebrew, to a free will friendship offering, a meal offering that worshipers would bring to God. It was a free will offering from the provisions that God had given them. So true worship is accompanied by true, that's accompanied by true missions also involves the letting go of our material goods for the sake of God's kingdom purposes. Something as simple as this. You guys help collect something that we take for granted. Children's multivitamins. Something as simple as that. Letting go of your stuff. Bringing a free will offering for the sake of the nations. That's gold down there. Here, we walk past it every day. Every day of the week, you could be buying a little thing of vitamins Bring them here so we'll be ready to go next year. So we are also told to come. We're to bring an offering, but we're to come into his courts. David had in mind the tabernacle here when he mentions courts and later the temple. But through the lens of the son of David, we know that the gathered body of believers is now the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. So now, in the fuller light of the new covenant as the church, we are to corporately bring our material possessions and to pull them together for the glory of God as we gather together. And we see that in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of the week, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And likewise, in the new covenant community, we are to come into God's courts. We are to come together and congregate as a people, Hebrews 10, 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why do we bring and why do we come, verse 9, to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. So again, there's that mission's focus, all the earth. There's that focus on fear, tremble before the Lord. But I want to focus real quickly on this phrase, to worship him in splendor of holiness. Perhaps your translation, if you have the NASB and a couple of other ones, maybe it says with holy attire or garments of holiness. The word splendor of holiness, the word splendor here carries with it the idea of decoration or adornment. And that's why the word attire is sometimes used. The focus here isn't on God's holiness, but ours. We are to worship him in the splendor of holiness. We are to worship him with garments of holiness, meaning that our lifestyle should be adorned by, decorated by, dressed by holiness. Holiness. David calls on the people to dress in holiness, not meaning our physical attire, but the actions and deeds that flow from our heart. 
Do you not know that your holiness or lack thereof either testifies to or distracts from your witness to the glory of God? Ephesians 2.10 teaches us we are created for good works. And Titus 2.10 teaches us to do good so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. So let me tell you a story of doctrine being adorned from our team here. There's a couple of people you might not recognize in our team. Uh, first of all, we have um, Mario and Kayla. They're in there. But there's a guy right there in the middle. Who's that? When did we send him out? The guy's name is Santos. Okay? Let me tell you one of the ways our team wanted to adorn the gospel. Is that previous teams that have gone down, previous teams that we've been involved with, I can't speak of all the teams, but previous teams that, that we've connected with from the churches in North Carolina have gone down there and, and did something last year that, that my wife in particular, but all of us, at least myself and some of the others from our group, found a little reprehensible. And that was that the teams would go down and they weren't paying for any of the meals of Santos or the driver or any of the translators or any of that kind of stuff. Instead, those guys had to sit outside while the team ate lunch. And that sickened my wife last year, and she just went and grabbed them and brought them in and said, just start eating. And, well, the, the director of that other missions team kind of got mad at Heather because they didn't pay for their meals and all this other stuff. But anyway, so we said, you know what? Every mission trip we've been on, Santos has sat outside every time. Sat outside for eating, sat outside doing what things we were doing. We're going to bring him in to our mission team. And so we did. We paid for him to stay at the hotel we were at. We paid for his meals. We, we, we did this. We treated him in the way we would want someone to treat us. And I think we adorned what our message was with holiness. And guess what? We had the most gospel-saturated conversation with Santos that I've ever had on any of the trips we've gone on. And he came into our worship services with us. And he worshiped God with us. And he was involved in things we were doing. He was even involved as I was sharing the gospel with a couple of, uh, of kids that we were playing soccer with. And he was sitting there right beside me going, just nodding. As I, I mean, he was part of the team. Because we decided to adorn what we were saying with actions consistent with it. That's how all of our life should be. Your life, your actions, your words either are consistent with this or contradict this. So, we are told to say among the nations, verse 10. Say among the nations. And here is the grounding. Okay, and here's our last point. We are to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So here's our final point, And I'm moving to a conclusion here. Our Lord's sovereignty and justice demand worship and missions. The Lord Yahweh reigns. He rules. He is sovereign. Absolutely sovereign over everything. Knowing that God is sovereign takes the burden off of us when we go on missions. I, I mean, I cannot imagine going on a mission trip and not having confidence that God was sovereign. But going on missions and knowing God is sovereign allows us to rest as we work. Now, a lot of times when people think of God's sovereignty, they think about big things like global events or even salvation. But on this trip, we saw it in small things. Our motto on the trip became, the Lord has gone before us. The Lord has gone before us. So let me just share a few ways how the Lord went before us, and then I'll, I'll bring the sermon in for a landing, I promise. All right, here's kind of a silly picture of Jeff, all right? It's the only one I found, Jeff, Sorry. Jeff is enjoying some good Honduran food that 
Hermana Marta, the, pa the pastor's wife of the pastor there in uh, Renacer, uh, made for us. He's enjoying this food. And I think this was the first uh, day where we had the men's um, meeting. Jeff was not smiling like that 24 hours earlier. Do y'all know the story of how Jeff got down there? Does he, has that been circulated yet? Jeff, I'm going to share it, all right? Jeff calls me at 6 o'clock at night before we're flying out the next day. I'm driving down the road, and I get a call, and he says, hey. I could tell he was like a little down. Like, hey, uh, I got a problem. What's the problem? My passport's expired. So Yes, everyone can now give Jeff a hard time because he was going on a mission trip, and the day before realized his passport was expired, all right? His passport's expired. We're like, oh, my goodness. What are we going to do? Well, made some phone calls, found out you can get passports overnight, believe it or not. Um, and, uh, but there was huge fees associated with it. We're like, oh, well, we're just going to we're just gonna play it by ear. Well, part of the problem was um, we, Jeff had some luggage we needed to go down there with us. We needed that luggage to go with us because every team member was taking two bags, one of their own personal stuff and one of stuff necessary for the trip. Matter of fact, we didn't even have enough team members. We had to take two extra bags on top of the 17 bags we had. So we're saying, okay, what are we going to do? And Delta was only going to waive the fees for up to 15 bags. And now we got to get Jeff's bag down there. How are we going to afford all this? What's going to happen? So we get to the airport. Number one, there was a nice person at Delta. That alone is the sovereignty of God, friends. <laughs> I mean, a nice, friendly, articulate guy who could just say, you know, oh, he, was, he wanted to help. So uh, he helps Jeff get paperwork that he needed, tell Jeff exactly what he needed to do, said, I will waive the change fee on your ticket. Waves the change fee on his ticket to move it to the next day. Tells Jeff to go on. Then says, you know what? I'm going to waive the fee on his extra bag. And those other bags, which we thought we were going to have to pay for anyway, I'm just going to waive the fees on those as well. So through Jeff's not being able to read the date on his passport, we saved 120 bucks. Just like that. We, we saw God working in just little ways. I know it may seem silly to you, but Jeff gets to the passport office. I think we, you're the last person in line before they cut the line off was able to get his passport, and didn't even have the exorbitant fees that we thought there were going to be. He just had to pay for a normal passport fee and plus a little bit of expediting fee, was there the next day smiling and eating Honduran food. And so we praise God for working in little ways like that. Here's Santos again, our bus driver. So when Jeff was coming back, coming a day later, Heather asked my mom, who was keeping our girls, hey, will you send me uh, my Tylenol and stuff? And so... So my mom gets everything that she found that had my wife's name on it and just stuck it in a bag and sent it with Jeff. So she gets there, and so my mom sent a bunch of medicine that Heather didn't need, particularly this medicine called atenolol, which is for high blood pressure, okay? And she didn't need it. So just have it there. Well, we're sitting here driving with Santos on the second day, and he usually, most of these mission teams are, are medical mission teams. And he recognized we weren't a medical mission team, but he just asked, and he said, listen, I'm out of a tenolol. I need some tenolol. And do y'all have any? And we looked over at Heather and said, yep, I do. God sent some tenolol with Jeff because he forgot his passport. So, another small way. We saw God bless this man who needed some tenolol, and now he has a tenolol for the next three months that he needs to handle his high blood pressure. Now, don't get on to me about giving prescri prescription medicine away. That's how it works down there, all right? And then there's these guys who thoroughly routed the gringos in soccer in the final. 
Well, we find out that last day, we had a soccer tournament for three days with the youth, and find out on that last day, Mario says, what gifts do you have for these guys? I'm thinking, gifts? We didn't bring any gifts down for the guy. We have nothing, to, no gifts. And I thought, you know what? Someone in the church graciously gave us a bunch of evangelism soccer balls and more than we needed to do some of the things we were doing down there. Let's see how many we have. Let's see if we have enough for the team. And we go, and sure enough, we had exactly five soccer balls left. So we gave them some brand new soccer balls. Again, the Lord went before us. I know all that may sound silly to you, but for us it was just like the consistent theme of the week. And the team can tell you other ways that it happened as well. We worship our God because He is sovereign. But we worship Him also because He will judge the peoples of the earth. We go on mission because He will judge the peoples of the earth. Either you will stand on the day of judgment dressed in the righteousness of Christ so that His good will be credited to you and His work on the cross will, be, will have taken your sin from you or you will stand there in vain and try to justify yourself. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Believer, let that quickly approaching day stir you up to passionate worship and urgent missions. An unbeliever, let that terrifying day cause you to tremble in fear and in doing so repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Don't sit around hoping that a day of judgment, our God, it says he judges the people. Don't sit around and hope that a day of judgment will never come. Believers, we look forward to that day and so does nature itself. And that's how the psalm ends. And that's how we're going to end. Psalm 96, 11. It says, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then, and this is future, shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, that's future. For he comes to judge the earth. He will, again future, judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. So as we drove around Honduras, we heard plenty of the nature testifying to the greatness and the glory of God. And this is just one of the many pictures we took. Psalm 19 teaches us that nature proclaims and declares God. We saw plenty of the testimony while we were down there. The only created beings that resist their design for worship and mission are sinful humans. And it is the sin of mankind that's brought curse on creation. Therefore, Romans 8, 19-20 tells us that creation awaits the day when sin will one day be done away with and mankind will fully join with it in giving glory to the triune creator of the world. Worship and mission. Two things that go together, that belong together, but only for a while. Only for a while. For when that glorious day comes, that, that day of judgment, that day of justice, when that glorious day of judgment that day of the Lord comes, when we see our Savior and our God face to face, missions will cease. It will have served its purpose, but worship will continue for 10 trillion years times 10 trillion years. And even then, we will only have begun to taste the joy of eternally exulting in our God's power and beauty, superiority and exclusivity, sovereignty and justice. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you and thank you that you are a God of great power and beauty. 
You are the only God. You are the exclusive God. You are superior to all other ways of believing and worldviews. Father, you are a God of who's sovereign over all the affairs of man. At the same time, you judge man for their open rebellion against you. So Lord, I pray today as we continue to worship with one more song, that you'd stir our hearts up. Stir our hearts up with passion and zeal to sing a new song that we already know. To sing a new song that corresponds to your greatness. So, Father, I pray that you would move upon, among the people here, there be any that do not know you, that they would take these words of justice seriously, that they would recognize that they need to be reconciled to a holy God, and that they would come and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone, the means you gave, your Son, the second person of the Godhead, who took on flesh and suffered a horrible death at the hands of sinners, at our hands, to take the punishment and the wrath that we deserved, and then rose again to glorious life, to give us new life if we'll place our faith in him. And he lived the perfect righteous life that we cannot live, so that when we stand before the judgment seat and the deeds are opened, and all of our bad deeds are exposed, Every Christian in here, the only hope will be for Jesus to stand in our place and say, I've paid the price for those deeds, and you're going to count my deeds in their place. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your work. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.